G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 2 of This Week in Startups Australia. Today, we'll be speaking with Ian Davidson and Danny Adams of GoFar. They'll be telling us how they plan to save Australian drivers half a billion dollars a year. Then we'll catch up with Dane Hedgepeth, who turned his love of skateboarding into a killer and very profitable iOS app. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Fishburners, Australia's largest startup space, with 90 startups working from one large building in Ultimo, including this recording studio. Fishburners is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting startup entrepreneurs and has a pitching competition open to the public every Friday afternoon at 4.30. Find out more at fishburners.org. We're here today with Ian Davidson and Danny Adams. Go far. Ian, Danny, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having Thank us, Mark. Okay, I am holding a little black cube. Well, not quite cube, so more like a flattened cube in my hand with a bunch of wires sticking out of one side. And this is... This is the core technology or one of the core technologies of your startup, GoFar. What is this? So what you're holding there is our OBD device. And this uh, this plugs into your car's diagnostics port. So OBD meaning? It's onboard diagnostics. So it's something that's been it's been mandated for, for a number of years now in new vehicles. Um, it's, a, it's a way of checking the diagnostics, sorry, the, um, uh, the emission systems on vehicles to make sure that they comply with emission controls. But through this port, we can actually get lots of um, interesting data. Such uh, as? So we can get data from uh, from onboard vehicle sensors, like the speed of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can use the data to determine the uh, fuel flow, so we can look at fuel consumption. And uh, we can also use the data to determine emissions flow rates, which is also very interesting. And once you have that data from the, collected from this little device, what are you doing with it? I think there's there's a general um, sort of big picture sort of angle here where um, knowledge is power. At the moment, historically, that data has been held by the car companies. They're not making so much money when they um, when they sell you the car, um, but they do make an awful lot of money on servicing and parts. Um, and so historically, they've been the only ones who've had devices that can plug into that port. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been a captive customer. Once you buy that car, you know, you're pretty much kind of captive and you're very profitable. What we're trying to do is now release that information so that consumers can use it and then use that to sort of drive a better deal. So you're sort of motoring. you're almost the open source revolution of the onboard diagnostics then. Um, well, it'd certainly be open data. So trying to sort of share that data. Um, and you see that in, in pretty much every other aspect of our lives now. We've got information, you know, on our Fitbits, you know, you know, hotel reviews, restaurant reviews, you know, we, we, and we've really used that to drive some fantastic deals. But the car, you know, running your car, it's been an absolute sort of um, sort of information black hole. Okay, so I've, I've got the data that's been gathered by this little device that I've plugged in. And but where is this port on my car? Why haven't I seen it before? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, it, it's a 16-pin port. It's not the most elegant thing. It sits under the steering wheel. Okay, all right. Um, so I, in, in a dark place. I plug, this, I plug this in somewhere behind the steering wheel, and it's now collecting data. Um, is this connected to something that's actually reading the data from it? Is the, has this got some sort of network connection to the world? It certainly does. So we, we connect to your smartphone, right? Uh, which is how we get the, the data out. Via into the, bl- Bluetooth? Via Bluetooth, right. Uh, which is so it's compatible with um, an Android or or uh, iOS phones, 
and that's how we get the data out and, and display it to to the user and then also bring it out to to our cloud service where we can we can do all sorts of interesting things up there okay so there's two things going on here one is that you've got someone in a car who's using this data now are they using this data while they're driving or are they using it after they've driven how 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 is this data of value to the person who's driving the car i, th I think what we're finding is um you use the information that you've got um and you know we have stuff that tells us um, how fast we can drive with the speed limits right. and how fast we are driving but there's not a lot that tells you how fast you should be driving um, so we can provide information in real time that's sort of telling you about the costs of your trip um, I mean it's unusual with the car because pretty much any other form of transport uh, I drove in today so I have no idea how much my commute cost Right. Yeah, I, if I'd taken a bus, a train, a taxi, I'd know exactly what that cost was. So, so is, is this similar to if you drive, for instance, a Prius or one of the Toyotas, they actually show you the amount of energy that's being used and how many liters per hundred kilometers that it, you're using. Is it similar to yeah, that? I would say it's, it's part of that trend. And so I think you've seen the car industry has started to open up now. Mm -hmm. um, some of the interface design is, is maybe a little bit more like... Um, and maybe how the internet was when we discovered flashing graphics in the late 90s. Oh, um, the blink tag. Yeah, so they, you know, I think the, the car designers, after 100 years of really only having a speedometer and a rev counter, they're like, oh, awesome, now we can really start to do stuff. So some of that stuff's a little bit confusing. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's part of that trend. Um, I think the difference with what we're doing is, one, you know, we're trying to sort of work with all cars. Mm -hmm. um, two, we work with all existing cars as well. So there's a billion cars already out there. That have um, OB OBD on them. Well, there's a billion cars out there, probably about 700, 750 million would have, the majority would have a, an OBD port on there that will be compatible. And that'll be any car manufactured, if it was manufactured in China or in India or in Germany, yeah. they'll all have the same port and you'll be able to get yes. the same data and from the, it. The standard's kind of gone around the world from the US in 1996, 18 years ago, um, yeah, South America, China, and sort of just been rolled out Europe, um, Japan, Korea. Um, so yeah, you've, you've got a lot, of, a lot of these cars. What's interesting is a lot of people will buy a Prius, for example, um, because they want to be eco-friendly right. and maybe save a bit of fuel. Um, what we're hoping that we can do is instead of maybe spending $45,000 on your new Prius um, and having to use all the materials to create that Prius right. and the lithium-ion battery, maybe $99 can keep your existing car going and is a much more eco-friendly way of so, approaching the problem. So that's the price point for the GoFar system is it's $99 We for, want to keep it under $100. For yeah. this, this little gadget here that connects to my smartphone. So it'd be, um, what we're trying to do is keep it under $100 um, to get sort of widespread adoption. Um, what you get for that is you get the, the app, right. you get the smart device, but you also get a dash top display that's giving you real-time feedback on your driving as and, you go. And that's these little plastic molds that I'm holding yeah, in Yeah, so hand. those are the 3D, so some of the three, 3D prints that are prototypes that we've, uh, we've been um, working with. And, and you take this and mount this somewhere? to the yes, display yeah you could choose where to mount it but so sort of somewhere sort of a, you know in in eye line or just below your eye line so it works um the same principle as formula one where it's increasingly moved towards um sort of led sort of yeah. displays drivers don't really have a lot of time to safely take in um, information if it's like numbers and dials yeah. so we're trying to make it you know it's it's all very much an emphasis on safety um similarly 
if you don't, we do provide a lot of information on the phone, but the phone's kind of locked down. You can't do much with it whilst you're driving. At least not legally. Um, well, no, well, if you're if you've got our our display, then you know you can see stuff. Right. You can, it's glanceable, um, but it's not a complicated screen, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and you can't interact with it unless the car's stationary. Right. So, so, so then, Danny, is this basically going to change color based on efficiencies, or I mean, do we do we know what this is actually going to feel like in terms of the user experience on it? It, it does. So, in, in its essence. Uh, if it's green, you're, you're driving efficiently. And if right. it's red, if it's glowing an angry red uh, at you, then you're wasting money. Then uh, the car is about to explode and you should pull over. So do I have any sense of a recommendation on how I can change my driving style to get it to move from the red to the green? Sure. It, it becomes quite intuitive uh, with, with the actions that you're doing at the time. Uh, you get that instantaneous feedback. So you, you start to learn... Um, those specific behaviors that are, that are costing you money uh, that we're currently really unaware of. I had a very shocking experience on Saturday. I got an experience of my first Tesla. They were showing it off down at the mall down the street. And I immediately sat in the driver's seat and was confronted by this massive it's panel huge, to the left. Yeah. It's what, like a 12-inch touchscreen, yeah. something like that that was loaded with options. And I looked at this and realized they'd taken all the stuff that was physical on the front panel and put it virtually under tabs in this display. And while people have told me, oh, don't worry, that display is darkened while you're driving, it's not a distraction, that was really sort of only half the point. The other half of the point was, okay, but if all of my controls over there, what happens if I want to change something while I'm driving? I don't have any way to do it. And so this, what I'm holding in my hand is going to become something that represents the reverse of that sort of thing where you took something and made it too complicated. This is trying to make it too, almost too easy, right? Absolutely. So... Can you get both of these into a system for $99? It seems to me that you could probably do that, you know, knowing how manufacturing costs work, you could do this for $99. Can you do both of these for $99? I mean, are, or are you just going to lose lots of money on that? <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, we can do it sub $100. Um, I think the um, when you're sort of producing at volume, um, the the costs come down significantly. If we're producing them one at a time, no, well, we will lose handsomely. Um, but uh, yeah, as soon as you're kind of producing in the um, sort of you know, tens of thousands, um, and you know, there's 15 million cars in Australia, we've done about 700 driver interviews, and it looks like about a million people would be interested in this kind of device. So if you're if you're up in the tens of thousands, and we're starting to penetrate into that million driver potential market in Australia, yeah, no, it's um, it works. We'll be right back. This Week in Startups Australia is recorded in the recording studio at the bottom of Fishburners on Harris Street in Ultimo. Now, the fact that a show about startups should be recorded at Fishburners isn't surprising at all, because in the four years that Fishburners has been here, it's managed to touch nearly every startup in Sydney, whether they got started here or got trained here or pitched their company here or learned something or made an important contact. Fishburners has become the hot red center of the startup community in Sydney. Find out more at fishburners.org. And we're back with Ian Davidson and Danny Adams of GoFar. So, Ian, you started to talk about this. 
what does this market look like? Well, first off, if I install all of this kit into my car and I keep this little thing glowing in the green, how much do I save every year? Uh, it depends which areas of driving cost we're talking about. So um, on fuel efficiency, we're targeting around uh, $400. So per year, per year. So if you if you were driving according to the uh, you know the feedback that you're getting from uh, from the GoFar device, um, yeah, around that around that level is. But then average. that also then means that this device pays for itself in three months. Yeah, it does. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So okay. So that's one. Are there other axes of saving? Am I saving wear and tear on the car or maintenance? Or what are the other ways that I might be saving? Yeah. I mean, you're definitely saving um, on wear and tear as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fuel saving is very is easier for us to measure. Um, the right. wear and tear is harder. Where we've been when we've been talking to consumers, they'll be saying things like, you know, you know, my my sort of son is always driving with the tires underinflated right. and it means I'm going through you know a $1000 set of tires in 2 years instead of 3 years so you you know you're, there's definite cost savings there um, on the wear and tear if we're looking at uh, we had we had a lot of interest from fleets as well um, because obviously if you if you've got one one fleet had a 17 million dollar annual fuel bill right. And we were talking about in our trials, we've been getting sort of 13 to 22% fuel reductions. And they were like, you know, you had me at 5%. Um, so, so you're going to save them 2 or $3 million a year. They could save significant amounts of money, yeah. And I think for a fleet, you know, I mean, we had one comment. What, what did that CFO say? It's like, oh, yeah, this is an, an easy decision for a CFO to sign off on. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that sort of stuff sounds pretty interesting. But they also get an extra kicker because... A lot of these fleets will be then selling on their cars mm. after sort of two years or three years, um, and if the car has been driven um, in a you know a smoother style, right. and you've got a data trail to prove right. that the car has been driven in a smoother style, that's going to have a benefit on your resale value too. So, Danny, are we heading to a day where I wouldn't buy a used car unless I have a data trail for the entire ownership record of that car? A GoFar data trail, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so let's talk about the market then, because then if there are 750 million cars that are potentially capable of getting efficiencies in their use through GoFar, what kind of market do you actually expect that you'll be able to achieve for, in Australia? Let's start with Australia. Um, well, I, I mean, looking at our figures, um, we're looking at around uh, about 250,000 sales, unit sales. Right. Um, over the next three so years, twenty-five million dollars in in revenue. A, a little bit more because we're we're not just you know. So, so if we're selling to fleets, it's kind of a capex mm-hmm. um, light model with a subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also extra things that we would like to provide to people. Um, uh, so, if for example, um, you know, say you do want to sell the car. Right. Um, then you know we could provide you know we could provide that sort of verified report. Right. Um, I think you're going to have to have some degree of verification for the the person buying the car to trust it. Um, but we can do that pretty cheaply. I mean, maybe for, you know, we can print something out with all your history for maybe $9. $9. If you want to get a mechanic to check the car over before you buy it, I've seen about $199 for that kind of service. I guess I, I have to ask this. Is all of the data that's being collected by GoFar on my car 
being uploaded to the cloud? Are you keeping a copy of it in the cloud? There is, yes. Uh, have you asked my permission to do that? And can I opt out of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you've asked whether I want to upload it. What am I getting if I upload my data to the cloud, to your cloud? I think I think where where this starts to get really interesting is we've talked about fuel savings, um, and we could pretty much just run that on the car. There's no real need to send that up to nice. the cloud. Um, but when if you're starting to sort of send your data up to the cloud, you know, with with permission, mm. um, you, there's more you can do with it. Um, so insurance, usage-based insurance is particularly interesting because the predominant model in Australia is like if you're this age, this gender. Yeah this is what you pay but that you know what what you know one of those people who look identical to an insurer might be driving 2000 kilometers a year and the other might be driving 12000 one might be a good driver they have an accident but one's a good driver and one's always like coming right up behind the car in front slamming on the brakes fast off at the lights and statistically you know we can see well this is the good driver and that's the bad driver right. but at the moment the good driver is subsidizing the bad driver right. and so if you choose you could you could just say look I don't want you to see my driving, my driver signature, but I don't mind you see, seeing my mileage. And if I can show that I'm only driving, you know, five thousand kilometers a year, and that guy's driving fifteen thousand kilometers a year, seventy percent of the risk is from when the car is on the road and moving. So my risk is significantly lower. So for the insurer to be able to price risk accurately. Um, I would want to reveal that information and get a benefit, get a reduction. So have you started conversations with insurance companies about this? Um, we, we've had very early conversations with sort of some of the underwriters right. just to sort of feel this out. So, but not, not significant conversations yet. Okay, so I'm getting the sense that there's a huge business opportunity here. So let's talk about you as a business. Now, how many are there of you right now? How many employees? Um, we've got four on the team full-time, um, and we've got a couple of industrial designers um, who are pretty full-time, um, and uh, we also have um, one guy full-time but not, not, an, not an, a sort of internal employee um, working on iOS. And how, how have you funded this so far? Um, so far, it's been um, our own pockets, working for free, yeah. sweat equity. Um, a lot of that in Australia. A lot of that in Australia, yes. Um, usually in Australia, it's you're pretty much okay um, in the very early stage. You're okay doing the seed round. Mm. And then with a the share option sort of set up, it suddenly becomes, you know, demonstrably unattractive to, to do a, an A round here. Yeah, although fingers crossed that's changing now. Fingers crossed that'll change July 2015. Yeah. So, okay, so... You've done it out of your pocket, but you must be now getting to a point as you're gearing up to manufacture where you're actually going to have some serious capital requirements. I mean, I know what it costs to make things, and it's not cheap to make the first one of things. Once you're making ten or 20000 yeah, the, the yeah. costs get better. Yeah. So how, how are you looking to fund that? Are you out raising money right now? Um, we're, we're raising money at the moment. We're pretty close to closing a round. Um, very keen to get it finished. Um, we were targeting between... Yeah, well, a max raise of about three hundred and twenty thousand. Um, so really, not even a Series A, more of an angel. Uh, round. Yeah, it's a C, yeah seed round, definitely yeah, yeah. not not an A round. Um, it's oversubscribed, so well, that's good to hear. You know, nine of the of the committed investors, sorry, nine committed investors, five of them want to put more money in. Mm -hmm. So we're just debating that at the moment, and uh, you know, kind of casting around to the network. Uh, there's another three external investors who would like to get on board. Um, so. 
I think we'll probably end up raising that um, and take more money on board. How have you found raising money in Australia? How, how, did, how, did, how did you find the process? How have you found the process so far? It's been pretty easy. We haven't tried. I mean, finding the investors and communicating with the investors, that's been actually reasonably, it's been easy. It's been really useful. We get great feedback. Mm -hmm. um, the legal stuff is a world of hurt. <laughs> It's just pain, 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 pain. Yeah. Because? It just takes so long, you know, and just so many documents. Um, someone must have digitized this, you know, but like everything we do nowadays, you know, you expect it to be online, digital, you know, efficient. I'll just tweak that. And you're sort of just walking up to the printer, pulling, pulling out like a 37-page document and realizing you've got a typo on page one. Uh, it's not a, it's not a good the, moment. This from the man I saw go through every single line of the release yeah, statement well, I just handed yeah. him. <laughs> All right. So, Danny, it's five years from now. You've gotten your funding. You're out. What does GoFar look like as a business? What have you done with all of this data that has been uploaded from all of these drivers to the cloud? Now that you're sitting on this real wealth of data, how are you using it and how is it bringing the business forward? Okay, so I, firstly, um, you know, we're using this data to, to save our drivers a whole lot of money. Uh, so they're saving a lot of money on insurance, they're saving a lot of money on fuel. Um, but further, further to that, um, we're using this data for uh, uh, predicting, um, for, for predictions. So if you imagine um, you do a, a trip to work every morning, um, we can actually tell you based on the data that we have on your car and your driving, uh, that if you leave for work 10 minutes earlier, right. you will save $300 per year. Right. Uh, if you were to change this, which is very tangible, you can you can save that. So we're really excited about the, the prospect of being able to do this sort okay. of stuff with data. What will happen is that actually GoFar will talk to your alarm clock, which will wake you up 10 minutes earlier so that you leave the house 10 minutes earlier. And you kind of won't ever even notice because you've plugged the car into the Internet of Things. How, how are we going to manage this Internet of Things where my sleep device is saying, sleep in? You know, <laughs> you're in a deep sleep cycle and, and your car device is saying, well, it's cheap, get on the road. You know, and your Fitbit's like, I don't mind, you know, I can it either way. It's, it's just going to be a massive bun fight. Yeah, the well, Internet of Things. It, you know, it, the technology may work, but then it just might not get on. But your Fitbit's going to check your bank account and figure out yeah. whether you need the money more or the sleep. That's true, yeah. Ian, Danny, thank you very much. Thank you. We're here with Dean Hedgepeth of Frosh Media. Good day. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mark. So you've just released an iOS game called Skater. And before you came into the studio, Felix, our erstwhile audio engineer, and I had a bit of a play with it. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was, I was just going through the training sessions. And so it's an app that basically allows you to be a skateboarder. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I guess the the key thing about this is that you've actually incorporated some real-world locations into the games. Yeah, yeah. So, the idea is basically we're um, a bunch of guys on the team. We're all skaters right. since a long time back. And we thought we could come in and make something that was quite different from the other things we saw available for people that are really into skating on, right. on mobile. Um, it's something that's been done on consoles, obviously, with um, Tony Hawk Pro Skater was right. a big franchise. And then EA Skate, interestingly, came into that 
already popular space um, where Tony Hawk had made a few sequels mm-hmm. and um, and made something that was a little more core and kind of positioned um, in in that way to to make something that was quite authentic for right. maybe for people that are a little bit more into um, skating itself as opposed to the casual audience. So. Yeah, we, we came in, we thought um, it was really the result of a lot of a lot of thinking and breaking down the topic, and we got to the point where we um, we had this idea in this way that we thought we could capture a little bit of the experience of um, of skating and of skateboarding and, and, and put that into a game for a few bucks. <laughs> now, the thing that I found really interesting, and I found this right off the bat, was that the user experience was much better and much different from what I was expecting. And I I am not a gamer gamer because I refuse to learn jump X, X, A, B, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing that I was told to do when I was walking through Skater was use your thumbs, your thumbs, your feet. And I could get that immediately. And all of a sudden I'm doing things and I handed the phone to Felix and he's doing things and we're both (laughs) giggling. And that, that to me was the sign that you'd actually thought things through now could you take us through the process that really got you to making because making things easy is hard absolutely um it's really interesting that um that you've picked up on that and uh it's interesting that you've asked as well because i could talk about this for hours so i'm going to self-edit as i'm talking because i really could probably bore you guys to death um yeah i like really sort of appreciate that you know if people are noticing that that there is a kind of simplicity and an elegance to the controls um, the the mechanics and the way that that interaction is put together uh, was something that we actually worked on for about six months before writing any prototypes. So before we even made any code, we went through and looked at, you know, just, just stuff down to the level of how people pick up motor skills and the best way to teach people something and really kind of got a little bit theoretical with it and academic and then started experimenting and designing the mechanic and thinking out like if we if we go in this direction is that going to constrain a certain thing or make something frustrating and and always trying to think can we make things consistent comfortable and um um and and easy to to pick up for the user but also having subtlety to them so yeah (laughs) so i guess the first question is where did you learn all of that how did you know to keep all of that in mind when you were designing uh, I think a little bit through osmosis and I've, you know, I've been building products for a while. I've been around startups for a while. And I, I particularly, I think, you know, I'm kind of drawn to the people that are very much uh, design focused mm-hmm. and I like seeing well-designed products mm-hmm. and that, that whole process interests me. And I think, I think, yeah, just reading a lot about, um, not just about startups and product design, but also like the, the process of, of learning things. And that's what games actually um in a biological sense the the emotion of fun is is a reward for expending energy learning a skill Mm -hmm. that will be of benefit to you so we have these mechanisms built into us of enjoyment that can be be triggered when a certain learning process and it it sounds kind of counterintuitive because learning isn't always fun Mm. Uh, but that's because we have to learn different things these days. We've got to learn accounting and, you know, and reading. Um, it used to be kicking a ball But the around. funny thing is, is that I actually learned how to use a bookkeeping system a couple of months ago. And although it was a bit hellish, the more that I learned how it worked, 
the more joy I was experiencing. Right, as you get competence and... Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so there really is that sort of, can you push through the brief moment of pain to get into the fun? Exactly. And and I think that that's a it, yeah a really great line that, that you need to walk is that learning is is also painful at the same time right. um picking up a new language especially at the start of that learning curve when you're just thrown amongst it and you got to pick up a lot of things um you know you become frustrated your emotional response becomes kind of uh, a bit flustered and you sometimes want to just leave that thing and not right. not push through with it so and and i mean with skateboarding in the real that's always accompanied by scrapes and falls, broken elbows, yeah. broken, you know, whatever. You know, so, so there's that real sense that skaters are very familiar with the pain that's associated with learning a I, skill. Absolutely. I think, you know, maybe more so than than many people or many professions out there. I was just just happened to walk past a, a skate film shoot mm-hmm. a couple of days ago down at Central Station mm-hmm. and the guy's trying to jump down. I think it's like a nine nine or ten set of stairs doing a really, really hard trick where he spins around and the board also spins around, but the board spins more than he does. <laughs> he catches it halfway and he's ten stairs up in the air. And and it's it's been a while since I saw a shoot, but um, it just just really reminded me, like just being there and watching. They've got f- guys spotting on the corners, you know, with their thumbs up and down, going clear for pedestrians, clear, clear, roll cameras, shoot. And for about an hour, this guy's just throwing himself down these stairs, and and, and that's what skateboarding is. It's failure punctuated by brief moments of try. Wow, we got we got the take. We've got another three <laughs> seconds of footage. Let's go on. We need yeah. So is that. Is that what game development has been like for you as well? Uh, I mean, if it I, took you six months to get to what is a beautiful interface, was that mostly failure punctuated with brief moments of joy? Definitely. I think, I think, and it's that, that explorative process. It's, it's very much like, like chess, right? Is that when you're designing things on paper or in your head, you're exploring different paths right. and you're trying to cross things off and find reasons not to go down a certain path so you can find the legitimate options and try and project as far out as possible. And then at some stage during that process, you get to the point where the trade-off and investment is worth it to actually start building it because you get you get better information from testing something in the real world. Right. You can simulate things in your head, but it's really, really flawed, but you can simulate a lot more. So, I don't know. I kind of nerd out on this kind of stuff. But. So, so, does that mean that as you were building things from the very beginning, you were handing them to people to say, try this, try this, and you were tweaking things? Absolutely. I think, I think you've got to get as soon as possible in the design process, but no sooner. And I, I think I think that's where people sometimes doing lean tests and stuff. In just in my opinion, I think people jump in and start building quite soon, and that gets them stuck in certain paths or investing right. what they could have done with lower quality information, but a lot more tests on just in whiteboarding it out, discussing it, right. and crunching more information with the power of you know you've got imagination and thought, and you can process ideas in that way as well. So you really advocate going as far as you can on the whiteboard until essentially you go, look it, we just can't go any further here until we get something built. Yeah, and and, and with an awareness of the quality of tests that you're gonna be running just in discussion, um, you you need to get real world results. And that's that whole like validation thing. So you've got to go out, you've got to see what real people do. You've got to see how they respond. And the tutorial that you guys ran through with the the game, we thought we had it perfect. And then we, we started testing it with people and like, you could not believe the 
m- multitude of ways that people interpret very, very, very specific instructions, you know. Oh, I can believe it. here once yeah. and you get a whole bunch of different things. So, trying to, trying to account for it's like a net. You're trying to catch as many of those people that might otherwise fall through the cracks as possible, which is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it takes, it really does take the experience of other minds in order to actually get that. Yeah, it's very hard to um, imagine what it's like to experience something from a completely clean slate, from people that are coming in. You don't know what what they do for a job, what their day's been like, what their past experiences with games are, if any. Um, so it's yeah, it's, it becomes almost impossible to to imagine what other people's experiences are going to be. That that's the point where you know come to the best uh the best uh ideas that you can before testing and then invest some energy building them and then test them and you've got to be ready to throw a bunch out and rethink them once once you have some actual data you're listening to this week in startups australia we'll be right back the two companies we're talking to today go far and frosh media both are headquartered in Fishburners. both got their start and their support here Ian Davidson of GoFar has been in Fishburner since it started almost four years ago. And that's not an accident. These companies are doing their best because they're in an environment that is supporting them, that is helping them be the best startup entrepreneurs they can. That's what Fishburners is all about. Find out more at fishburners.org. And we're back with Dane Hedgepeth of Frosh Media. So, Dane uh, bought the game. It's 650. Yeah, that's really expensive. I mean, when there's so many free games out there on the iTunes store and all of that, well, what was your what's your pricing strategy on that? Right, right. So when you uh, you you look at the field of games available, mm. um, there are a lot of games. There's ev- everyone you know in in game development, I guess, would be aware of the race to the bottom when things went to mobile, and um, that was driven. Uh, in part by the low barrier to entry. So, a lot of competition, a lot of noise. And the economics of um, uh, being visible in your space combined with competing against other games, when you add everything up, it it became very hard to um, keep, keep that price up and get people over the barrier of purchasing a product they're not familiar with. And this is... Historically, this happened in 1982 as well with the Atari games. And there was mm-hmm. the collapse and led to Nintendo having a closed platform where they would specifically license a number of titles for the platform. And the modern console gaming strategies that we see today happened because that precisely happened in the console space 30 years ago. Right, right. Yeah. And and, and adding to that, I think, is the whole phenomenon of microtransactions. Mm. So, I think for a lot of games, it, it makes a lot of sense to get people in with um, $0 up front with the most attractive thing possible so that you can get a wide audience. And what that does to the the type of game that will survive in that that model is that um, it becomes all about getting the largest initial audience that you then can convert into paying customers. So you get some percentage of conversions and those will then pay for your business. Exactly. And, And so that leads to... Um, an emphasis on products that are casual titles that right. have no specific 
um, they don't lock anyone out. You know, it's not for a specific audience to the exclusion of others. It's things like, you know, games like Candy Crush, you know, that doesn't exclude anyone. Right. Um, the, the themes are as general as possible so that, you know, anyone from, um, you know, a housewife to an uh, elderly person to a 12-year-old. Um, and apparently that, that really is the spectrum of people that play things like Clash of Clans and Candy Crush. It is so demographically diverse. All right. So you've now taken exactly the reverse strategy. You've said we're going after a very specific demographic. Exactly. So we, we had a look and, and the idea was pre-validated um, somewhat by a previous game we'd done, which was a surfing game we did as a collaboration with Rip Curl. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw with that that the, compared to other products that we had experience with and built, um, there was just a really great uh, organic growth of of uh, the audience. So word of game. mouth, word of mouth, but also um, just pure app store traffic. You know, the the platform is is mobile still growing, and yep. it's it's you know there's hundreds of millions of people on there. And for something like surfing, which if you consider the sport uh, a brand in itself, mm-hmm. like there's there's so much awareness for that, that the odds of someone being a surfer, getting an iPhone at some point and having a look for a surfing app at some point are reasonable compared to the odds of someone thinking I'm going to get a casual adventure game and going on to a, uh, you know, there's so many adventure games, there's not many surfing games. Right. So you've got this um, equation that sort of works out. We had a look at, at skateboarding games a couple of years back and we said there's nothing there are some some games that were built by um by great developers that were fun, but nothing that was built by people that um had deep knowledge of the sport, the culture, what makes skateboarding fun, and that could make something that really spoke to the existing skateboarding audience. So they were coders but they weren't skaters. I I would say so, yeah. <laughs> yep. All right, so what? So you came to it both as coders and skaters. So then, what does that mean to a skater who's playing skater? Well, uh, I think you know, just in the feedback we've get, gotten so far, is is probably the best illustration of that. Um, now, that. And the game's only been out just a little while, right? A few weeks, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the feedback we get, particularly from core skaters, is you know really hitting those points of like this this feels like skating it's great that you've got the you know we've got all these hooks in there like the real world spots and the the gear and stuff well, let, so. let, let's talk about that for a second so you have the carlsbad gap in there which is a real world spot that doesn't exist anymore and yep. r.i.p <laughs> is um a kilometer from where my family lives in carlsbad wow <laughs> so as i was looking at that and then there's hollywood high and i used to live right down the street from hollywood high and i would see the kids skating the the 12 stairs yeah there and so what was the the rationale behind using the real world spots so the spots as much as any of the personas, like as much as any famous skater, you say Tony Hawk or any of the big names in street skating, those spots play as much a part of the, the culture and the history of skating. I would say it's like, you know, going to surfing and saying Mavericks, right? you know, or Chopu. Chopu. Um, these spots are like legendary in themselves yeah. and have a lot of history. And, you know, people quite often will, will it's all about being the first guy to do x at a certain spot so and once it's done then you've kind of ticked it off and you've you've put a little notch in in the history of 
the sport by being the first guy to do that trick there. And and so so skaters almost have a bucket list of I want to go to these spots and do these tricks there. Then. Well, I think any any skater who's not a professional, you've seen these these spots for you know decades right. in in every skate video, and it's always the biggest gnarliest tricks. And so it's a purely aspirational thing, which is what drives skating is. Um, you know, the brands uh, sponsor teams right. and they have their riders that ride for them and then they put out media and content which shows people skating and doing the highest level stuff possible and that's when you go and buy a skateboard of a certain brand, it's um, it's really kind of buying a little bit of that experience Absolutely. or that personality of that brand. So, being able to jump on, you know, and, and in a virtual way, you know, skate these spots is something that i think every skater kid wants to do now uh, are do you have in-app purchases for new spots or do you just have a fixed number of spots in the game uh, we've got five spots and they're all you know just come with the initial purchase so there's no in-app purchases um like honestly like we've got another spot we're going to be dropping soon we're not going to charge for that one. So it'll just be an update to the app. Just an update for the existing customers. I I don't know if there's some point in the future where maybe we'll do like an upgrade pack where you can buy more spots for a buck or something. But yeah, it, it wasn't designed with that in mind. We really just want to give people value up front. Right. And you, you know what you're getting. And how are sales going? Pretty, pretty good. And I say pretty good because um, we actually had a tech issue when we launched mm-hmm. a few weeks back and as we launched apple featured the app in 92 countries and just as that was happening we had to pull the app because mm. of this tech issue so i i think uh did apple get upset no no but they didn't feature us when we put the app back online yeah. Yeah. so we did the right thing i think oh in, yeah no, in you totally did. we've got an issue it's affecting way over the threshold of the number of people that we really should um, remove this. So, within a few hours, we just took it down. And it was a problem that only occurred in the live version. So, it was a very strange thing that there was not equivalence between the development and the live version. Heisenberg. Classic. (laughs) Heisenberg. That's, yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it was. And so, yeah, but look, that considered, um, you know, we've been, we, 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 We've been in up and down, but we've been holding around in the top fifty in games in the US. Oh, that's that's mad. That's fantastic. Yeah, we we I think we're currently like number four sports game in in Australia right. and in a bunch of countries. Like, and for a game that's not free, right? For a game that actually costs a lot of money. Exactly. Yeah. So it's with a, a, a premium purchase price, yeah. an ind- independently produced game. Yeah. And I think that's all credit to the fact that we've built something not for everyone. That's a diluted experience. We've built a very resonant experience for for a, a large subsection of the po- you know population. Okay, so let's now talk about your team. So you 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 have a team here at Fishburners, but you have a distributed team. Yeah. So what does that mean? So some developers, who's where? Uh, so I've got um, UX, really, really great um, mm-hmm. UX guy uh, here in Sydney and also um, another guy that works on some of the back-end coding mm-hmm. and, and everyone wears a few different hats. So I, that's the clearest sort right. of attribution of, of what people do I could give, I guess. 
Um, and then um, in the UK, I've got uh, 3D artists. Right. Um, in uh, Ukraine, I've got a programmer and a 3D artist. <laughs> yep. Um, and in the US, I've got um, people that help with PR. I've got a marketing hustler who has 30 years in the skateboarding industry. Okay, now, now you've just <laughs> described enough time zones that you would not be getting any sleep. So how is that working? It is, I my, my widget screen on my Mac has like, I think all the time zones on. I've got like eight clocks, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Europe, uh, Russia, different parts of Asia. So, right. yeah, I've, I've literally in, in the months leading up to launch, I it wasn't uncommon in a week for me to completely flip my sleep pattern um, three times, two days in one zone. And then I really I've mastered the use of sleeping pills to to, to flip my time zone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Is this? Uh, do you have another game in the pipeline now? What, what's the future for Frosh Media? I think um, I think things are going well enough with with Skater currently that we can commit to supporting this for a while. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely um, uh, some 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 legs on this product, and I think you know with a few updates and a bit more content, I think we can really get like six to twelve months of supporting existing users and really getting this out to to everyone that might be interested in so um do you have ambitions to build a big game studio or are you happy doing just a title every once in a while what do you reckon what where's your heart i think um i think the thing that led to this project was just doing something different i like to kind of see what's going on and spot opportunities and i also like a big challenge so i think for where we we were i think this game was a huge challenge and i think um, you know, a lot of people have been like, oh, you could make a snowboarding game now or, you know, I, that's, I think that's too, uh, the timing's not right anymore. I think we need to hit timing on the head for something new. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of stuff happening with the Oculus Rift and new platforms, new technologies. I'd love to get in with something that um, kind of hopefully sets the bar a little bit. I think with we looked at touchscreens and we've maybe done some new things there that yeah. hopefully I would really love to see other developers, uh, you know, uh, that that would be awesome, I think, to see other people go, oh, that's an interesting way to do things and, and take inspiration from that. So I'd like to, love to take some new platforms and just play around with them and hopefully, I, I don't know, do some new stuff. <laughs> Dane, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks so much, Mark. Cheers. Things happen so fast in the startup space. In our first episode, Ian Gardner told us just how difficult it was to issue stock options in Australian startups. But just in the last couple of weeks, the government has signaled big changes starting from July 2015, which will basically make it the same as it is in America to issue stock options. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be joined by lawyer Raina Lee Shannon, and she will sit down and explain to us how stock options will work in Australia going forward. In addition, we've also just launched a Tumblr blog with lots of behind-the-scene photos from this podcast, links to the SoundCloud and YouTube. If you want to visit it, go to twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Once again, that's twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to Murray Herps and Fishburners for sponsoring our show and to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for their most excellent audio production. To Ian Davidson, Danny Adams, and Dean Hedgepeth, thanks for being such agreeable and informative interviewees.
I'll speak to you again in a fortnight when one of our guests will tell us how they're disrupting the taxi business. For now, this is Mark Pesci signing off from This Week in Startups Australia.